You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imam Imran Akram. And uh, I would say, you know, from our sunny studios, but it is already dark already. Mm. It is the midst of winter time. And uh, how are you feeling today, Imran? Yeah, very good. Alhamdulillah. Um, all praise belong to Allah. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, um, um, like past two days are being very cold. Uh, have you noticed suddenly? And uh, yes, I have noticed <laughs> very suddenly. I was out on uh, Sunday, yeah, Sunday morning. Yeah. So it was something like three degrees yeah. uh, as I was walking around for a couple of hours. So yes. And uh, I think Zishan was just telling us, our, our technician, that uh, the next couple of days could be minus. So, but then yeah. I suppose it is December. You know, what more uh, do we expect? Yeah, obviously, and uh, obviously we're accepting um, uh, snow as well. So yes, unlikely. which actually brings us quite nicely onto uh, what are our topics today, oh, yes. Iran? Yeah. So um, in the first hour, we'll talking about uh, the cost of living crisis, fuel, property, um, poverty, and obviously uh, this is very much related to you know uh, in today's. Um, uh, scenario and um, certainly, you know, uh, we're going through a severe um, a cost of living crisis, especially if, if you talk about a full poverty and a living uh, crisis. So, in second hour, we'll um, talking about um, volunteering and how can volunteer uh, oneself um, to different, you know, different fields and uh, uh, especially uh, what volunteer can affect, you know, on. Uh, on a human psyche and stuff like that. So, obviously, if if we talk about the um, uh, the economic, uh, you know, uh, the situation which are in world today, so there's no question that uh, the world's uh, world's economic condition today is complex. The financial and economic state of world is far from ideal, and uh, the uh, issue uh, revolving around government poverty and welfare, homelessness and labor are getting worse day by day due to the current financial crisis issue. And problems are coming, uh, you know, uh, coming up uh, that may not have been previously um, perceived. Mm-hmm. One of these problems is fuel poverty due to the, you know, energy crisis, even in more uh, developed countries like UK, mm-hmm. uh, which is considered, you know, sixth or fifth largest economy of the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, a shortage of gas and uh, energy will um, uh, cause problems like heating the homes, this is a highly, you know, concerning condition, especially for the elderly and children. Mm. So we are going to face, um, mm. unfortunately. Yeah, thing. I mean, I think this uh, problem, Imran, has like been with us since, uh, well, most of the year actually, because with the uh, energy fuel cap, um, I think the first one was around about February March time, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, effectively, uh, someone's average fuel bill. Um, maybe uh, before this crisis, um, around about one one thousand five hundred, one thousand four hundred mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. average uh, household, uh, has escalated now to I think around about three thousand four hundred. Wow! But um, so nearly I'd, tripled. Basically. Yeah, nearly tripled. But yeah. uh, I think in her brief premiership, uh, Liz Truss, the um, Prime Minister for, was it 44 days, <laughs> had actually promised to cap 
uh, fuel bills at two thousand five hundred. So anything in excess would be provided for by the government in in terms of rebates. So I think uh, later on in the show we'll be talking to our guests uh, who will be coming on regarding this. But yes, it's a very you know, it's a very serious problem because mm-hmm. it's something which is affecting not just certain um, sectors of the society; it's affecting everyone, you know, point blank. And uh, you know, we just mentioned mm-hmm. just at the top of the program that it's getting colder, right? Yes. And you know, to have that to be, can you imagine in a household where you have to decide whether you're going to turn on the heating? Or whether you're gonna, you know, eat, Absolutely. because that's the two. That's the double-edged sword that a lot of households uh, are facing uh, during this winter in the UK, um, and that is whether it's food poverty or fuel poverty. Uh, and in terms of these two expressions, it's something which I would never have thought. Um, the UK would have suffered. Absolutely. I mean, uh, on on the one hand, we you know we have a full po- um, fuel poverty, and you know um, we have a, a food crisis as well. Many people are you know, um, especially uh, um, uh, trying to volunteer themselves and uh, uh, trying to help people. And uh, mm-hmm. in our community, the Muslim community, they are and uh, their campaign in our community uh, called Warm Home Warm Rooms, mm-hmm. which means so um, that you know. Uh, for every day, for five or six hours, uh, people are accommodate uh, in in um, uh, the very essential of, uh, for example, they can sit in mm-hmm. a warm room and they can talk to each other and you know have mm-hmm. a, a warm cup of tea. So, uh, I think uh, initiative like these we need to focus um, mm-hmm. in, in a smaller scales. Mm-hmm. So we can you know different communities can arrange um, people who are suffering from uh, fuel poverty. Mm-hmm. They can arrange these kind of warm homes. And I think. It's an indictment on this government, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that communities like ours, um, you know, in Christian communities, are having to have to do this, yes. you know, to support mm-hmm. uh, to support communities uh, locally uh, and nationally. That um, you know, we've got into this dire strait. I mean, you know, the consequences of people struggling to keep their houses home. Uh, is very wide-reaching and you know, obviously long-lasting because it's not just a short thing, this, mm-hmm. or a short period of time. I mean, you know, let's not just look at the, the, the inconvenience, but let's look at just even the underlying health conditions mm-hmm. and problems that many, especially, I suppose, the elderly, uh, children, and, you know, newborns will actually have to endure. Uh, access to warm conditions is essential for individuals to stay healthy. And if they are unable uh, to do so, uh, fuel poverty counts as a public health emergency. Mm-hmm. So hence, uh, once again, something that which has to really be addressed by the government, because right. it's the government we look to for leadership. It's they who take our taxes, so they should be providing something in return. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in light of the current circumstances, it's, you know, it's vital for communities uh, and people to stick together in order to support each other. And it's even more important to remember our Creator, Allah Almighty, uh, in these difficult times. Uh, and following the teachings of Islam, uh, as the Holy Quran is the best resource uh, of guidance for us uh, on dealing in all sorts of problems, I mean, you know, that we face day to day. Is there anything that it says regarding uh, the Holy Quran? I'm sure it does, Imran, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but regarding hardship. 
Yeah, obviously, I mean, um, Allah the Almighty says that, you know, and there is ease after every hardship. So um, obviously we face, you know, difficult in, uh, difficulties in life, but there, uh, after every, every difficulty, there will be, uh, there will be ease uh, from God Almighty that, you know, uh, he, he says in the Holy Quran that uh, um, this is chapter uh, 94 and verse 6, that surely there is ease after every hardship. So it's a natural, you know, uh, phenomenon of the, um, of the life that, you know, after uh, every uh, hardship, will uh, have a ease mm-hmm. so hopefully that's uh, that's you can uh, one can you well, know uh, yeah i can answer that because the energy cap uh, i believe at the beginning of next year because it's reviewed every six months um to my understanding mm-hmm. uh and i think actually it might have gone down to three months but uh the next energy review or price cap is slightly lower Mm-hmm. So, but not considerably, but still slightly lower. But to talk about uh, this and many more issues regarding uh, fuel poverty, we're joined by our first guest of the day, who is uh, Dr. Tammy Boyce. Now, Dr. Tammy Boyce is a senior research associate uh, at the Institute of uh, Health Equity, which is based in the University College London. Peace be upon you. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show this afternoon, uh, Dr. Tammy Boyce. Hello, it's nice to be here. So, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, the energy crisis. Uh, you know, will there actually be lights out this winter? Uh, who knows? But, you know, people on social media claim uh, they lived in a cold home during the 70s and had no significant health issues. Uh, is that an accurate portrayal of life in the 70s? I mean, I remember the 70s and there was the winter of discontent. Um, but I don't, you know, remember it being quite as bad as it is today. Well, um, I, I think I remember the 70s as well. Um, but we also have to remember, for one thing, our homes were 40 years younger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> True. They've all aged a bit. Um, but the other thing is, is research is much, much better than it was in the 1970s. We were still talking a lot about just general health and what impacted our health in terms of our genes and our body, you know, how we were born. That's, that's what impacted our health. And mm-hmm. since then, we have a much better understanding of external factors in our environment, like our homes, like air pollution, that all of these things have, you know, how they impact both our physical health and our mental health. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in terms of that, then, would you say that, uh, you know, these claims that are on social media that, you know, uh, I suppose they're, they're quite, how would I say, just, you know, the, the, the elder generation looking at the younger generation and like saying, really, come on, you know, we had to endure worse than this. You know, we, you should just, you know, just buckle up and just get on with it. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, sometimes we tend to look back as we age and we, we you know, there's an element that we walked uphill to school and then we walked uphill back from school. I mean, <laughs> you know, the reality is, is, you know, homes have Im- impacted our health. You can hear my voice. I'm not from this country. I'm from mm-hmm. Canada. I'm from a country that is very cold. Mm-hmm. And people do not die on the whole from cold homes. Mm-hmm. But they do in countries like Britain and other countries in Southern Europe because we don't build homes properly. We mm-hmm. don't insulate our homes you know, there just isn't that tradition. And 
of heating and our homes properly. So, yes, people did die in the 1970s, but it wasn't, you know, we would have said, uh, you know, we're not saying that you walk into a home and you die. You're sort of, mm-hmm. you know, it's about the impact that it has on your health, that it worsens your respiratory health, that it worsens your cardiovascular mm-hmm. health. Mm-hmm. Those are the, it's a, you know, it can, yes, on rare occasions, as we have seen in the case of Awab, the two-year-old from Rochdale, it can have a direct impact on your health. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly it will make you ill in rare instances, as it did with Awab, it will actually kill you. But for the most part, it just worsens your mental health, it worsens your physical health. Timmy, mm-hmm. so, um, with regards to the cause of this problem, uh, I mean, how did we get here? Despite many studies, and you, you talked about it, that, you know, we're not building house correctly. So uh, despite many studies uh, saying um, investment is needed, uh, isolation, uh, sorry, uh, insulation is needed, what you know um it has not happened yet well i mean it was happening that's the thing we've known for a long time i mean at least climate change has made us aware that we need to insulate our homes you know it'll improve our health but it'll also help us reach net zero we have to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions mm-hmm. so really it's a win-win we're going to improve houses make it better for people but we're also going to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and so that's what governments were doing up to about 2010 and then the uh the Tory government or the coalition government continued to fund these until about 2012 because a lot of them were long-term contracts and then from 2012, we've had an almost 90% decrease in funding to help people pay for insulation. Mm-hmm. So it's it's almost non-existent in most places. Now, you know, if you have a nice middle-class house and, a, you know, you can afford it, that's fine. But for many people on low incomes who have higher rates of fuel poverty and death and illness caused by cold homes, you know, they just can't afford to insulate their homes. So what's happened is these homes have gotten worse in the last 10 years. You know, mm-hmm. the quality of these homes have gotten worse. So, you know, we've had an opportunity. We've lost 12 years, basically, 10, 12 years of insulating homes in Britain. Mm-hmm. And in that time, you know, what also has happened is we've also lost a lot of expertise and professionals who could fit this insulation. So when there are programs, I was talking to some people last week from a housing association up near um, Liverpool, Mm -hmm. and they were saying when they get funding to do insulation, what happens is is they they just can't find the people to install it Mm -hmm. because they get drawn into huge contracts, and then, you know, if they're trying to, say, fit, say, 50 houses with insulation for a housing association in, in Liverpool, they just can't find the staff to do it. So, you know, there's repercussions. Yes, the houses haven't been insulated but also what's happened is that army of people to insulate houses those skills have also just decreased and and in some places disappeared hmm. so Tammy, i mean how can actually you know cold homes and the well the you know this this thing called fuel poverty uh, affect other determinants of health um you know in in terms of are they themselves um, variables in that equation of a, a healthy lifestyle, or are they, you know, uh, like, do, is there a domino effect? For sure, for sure. I mean, so, you know, what does it mean, fuel poverty? It means mm. that you, it basically just means you can't. You can't you afford know, to a, heat your home. Yeah, 
Exactly. It's a fancy way of saying it. And the the thing is, we used to say before this winter, we would say about across most parts of of England, about one in 10 homes are fuel poor. People can't afford to heat their homes. Mm -hmm. Now the estimates are, you know, maybe that could be as high as one in two to two in three people, two in three households, I mean. We have no idea what impact this is going to have on people. So what kind of, you know, what does that mean? You know, what impacts does it? You know, it's it's got lots of different impacts. I was talking to some people from from Kidney UK uh, last week, and they were talking about people not being able to afford dialysis. Mm. They don't want, you know, wow. they're having, and that means, you know, they have to go into hospital. So that's a bed that could be used by someone mm. else. But because they're reluctant, you know, they just simply, some of them can't afford to, to do dialysis at home. You know, there's other, you know, for families that are caring for people um, with, um, you know, complex disabilities, mm-hmm. you know, who are having to run machines at home to support family members. You know, it's a very stressful time for these families because they can't. They have to keep these machines. Pl- it's not an option to plug them in. So, you know, there's examples like that. But there's also examples of people having to choose between whether or not, you know, they're going to pay to eat or pay to heat. Mm. I've also had instances, I've seen surveys of people, you know, prices of Wi-Fi and broadband have gone up this year, uh, you know, for Mm -hmm. mobile phones and for homes. One of the surveys I saw is if you had to choose between Wi-Fi and heating, what would you choose? And a third of people chose Wi-Fi, paying for their (laughs) Wi-Fi instead. So, you know, these are crazy decisions that mm-hmm. maybe a year ago we wouldn't have thought we would have had to have yeah, made. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I totally agree, Tammy. I don't think these ever came into... Uh, I mean, I, I hate to say the average household because all households are different uh, to a certain extent, right? Um, I'm sure those in the upper echelons, maybe, you know, those who are homes of government ministers would never have to exactly. kind of like uh, worry about that. Maybe their second homes or their stables uh, whether their horses are being kept warm enough, um, but that's uh, that's I suppose a topic for another day. But you know, for those of us who have to, I mean, I, I've literally uh, come from a cold house, and I've asked my wife, well, why, don't, "Why didn't you turn on the heating?" Uh, and we all three of us have got coughs, right? Yeah. Uh, and you know, these are uh, you know, and problems which are affecting. Like you say, you know, uh, the majority of households in the UK currently, and it's something that I think I said at the top of the uh, show that I never thought I would ever hear of, really, yeah. in my lifetime in in the UK. Because, uh, to my knowledge, we are still around about the sixth biggest economy in the globe. So for us to be, um, I think your expression there, having to decide to eat or heat is just uh, ludicrous, really. Well, you know, we, we live in a global world, don't we? You mm. know, this is, this is a radio station that's going out with people who probably have lots of contacts around the world. So, you know, we're, we're thinking outside. So if we try and look at the prices, energy and fuel prices, we're, we're, not, you know, we're not stupid people. We know that they've gone up around the world. It's mm. not just in the UK. But why is it in the UK that it's affecting seems to be affecting us more and it's not seem it really is affecting us more and that's because of the inflation that's going on all around it so mm-hmm. it's not just and in most other countries it's just their energy and heating bills have gone yeah. up 
but they can manage it because they don't have the same prices increases that we have, which is mm-hmm. our average prices for food have gone up by, on average, 10 or 11 percent, isn't it? Mm. But for some things, it's gone up by 25 percent. Yeah, if you look at so, things like pasta, rice, you know, these basics, <laughs> these staples, it's, it's gone through the roof. Um, it, exactly. And you compare it to other countries, we are just, it's just, we've just been hammered in the UK. And that's because, you know, we have to ask, why has that happened? Mm. It's happened uh, because of the post-pandemic economic recovery simply hasn't happened because of choices that the national government have made. Mm-hmm. It's just not been managed properly. Mm. And also, we have to look back even further and look at the impact of Brexit. Ah, you mentioned it. I was just thinking that. The white yeah. elephant in the room that no one seems to like to mention. Brexit. Yeah. Um, exactly. And it's, compli- and it's partly it's complicated. Mm. You know, I'm, I, I'm not 100% confident, but all of the, econ- you know, to explain precisely why. But all of the economic um, analysis shows that these impacts are related to us having to pay additional fees because of the, leaving the European Union. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Demi, um, how can councils help you know, uh, residents while the government is bringing in um, austerity measures and you know, cutting fundings? I mean, that's a good question. I, you know, I don't sort of want to come on the radio and, and, and worry people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there is you know, there is some support available. I think the unfortunate, you know, the, the, the measures that the government have, you know, the amended measures, because initially the measures weren't targeted at the poorest households. Mm-hmm. So at least they've amended them, but they're not sufficient. You know, we have to be honest here, and that's why people are not turning their heating on um, or having to make different difficult choices because that government support isn't enough. So, so what can people do? It's not just, you know, local governments, they're also, ca- also cash-strapped. You know, they've had to deal with severe austerity this year, severe, severe, worse than they have compared to their uh, experiences 10 years ago when we had austerity the first time with this government. So, you know, they will be, they will be providing support that they can. I think most councils, if you go on their websites now, they've collated local information like they did for COVID for people to say where there are local organizations offering support if you live in a housing association your housing association should be supporting you and giving you some support um and i would say mostly the voluntary sector is doing an amazing job on a shoestring on this there's lots Mm -hmm. of good work being done by citizens advice there's also local groups that that are fixing houses you know i know in north london there's an organization called heat they've done very good work they're going to be overwhelmed this year because Mm -hmm. they're you know they're going to be supporting people that never thought that they, in their lives, would be fuel poor. Um, so, you know, there is help out there, but there's a lot of people who will need help this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, what can actually be done, Tammy, uh, to bring up um, the heat efficiency, let's say, right, of old housing stock to, you know, even, you know, acceptable levels? Because... To my understanding, I think uh, a lot of, say, for instance, semi-detached housing, housing stock uh, from, I think, the 50s onwards was just a single brick construction, a uh, single brick wood construction. So, obviously, that leaves you um, quite prone to the elements. There's a big temperature differential between the inside of a house and the exterior of a house. So, um, you know, how can this older housing stock be... I suppose, um, kind of like budget and legged it so that it's actually warmer now? Well, 
you know, I mean, it is insulation for yeah. for the houses that can be fixed. You know, I think it was Energy Saving Trust um, did some estimates about, you know, if you insulated your loft, it would be about 250 a year you could save. Mm-hmm. If you had solid wall insulation, it's about 400 you could a year you could save. And cavity wall insulation would be about 300 uh, you could save. So, you know, you add that up, that's about £1,000 a year mm-hmm. before the price increases that you could save if you insulated your house. So, you know, that's definitely, you know, of course, replacing your windows. Um, you know, and in some places I know it's ventilation. You need to improve that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm thinking about, you know, we've recently done some work at the Institute of Health Equity in um, Lancashire and Cumbria, and I'm thinking about talking to some people in Blackburn about the quality of housing in Blackburn. And, you know, there's some real pockets of deep poverty of homes that are um, perhaps multi-generational. So there's people living, quite a few people living in the home. Mm-hmm. And so that house is probably quite quite damp. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's trying to get that, that mold and get the air coming through there. And in some of these places, I know when I have talked to, um, you know, people working in housing is, you know, what they're trying to do is, you know, they they realize that actually, you know, these people need new housing. They need bigger housing, yeah. but there's a housing shortage, particularly for houses, for housing association houses with, you know, more than two or three bedrooms. So, you know, councils are stuck. They really have not been funded by this. I mean, you know, it's an easy target for people to blame local councils, but you have to be mindful that they have really had their budgets cut. Mm. And they're trying to almost, in some cases, I think, perform miracles because they're just on shoestring budgets. Really, from from April next year, um, the work that they're doing is, is going to be so important, yet they're under such pressure, the cuts they've had to make this year because of the funding, the lack of funding they've received, the reduced funding they've received from the national government. So, you know, new housing is needed in a lot of places, in places like Blackburn, but, you know, they just do not have the budgets to do that right now. Mm. But, I mean, I, I don't think the onus of this should really just fall on local councils. It's a central government thing, um, really. And it's ever since, I suppose... Uh, that thrust in the 80s from uh, Maggie Thatcher, um, I think coining the phrase that you know everyone should be able to own their own homes. And yeah. I think that was the big, although at the time it, it seemed to be progressive, uh, the ability to own your council home uh, if you'd lived in it for a certain period of time. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, that's taken that housing stock out of the market from... Uh, public into private ownership. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> it's such a good, you know, it's a good point, you know, for people of a certain age, over a certain age, you know, we remembered when there was decent support for people mm-hmm. on lower incomes. And now really, you have to be on a very, very low income in order to get that support. Mm-hmm. And we know that, you know, and in, in many places around, you know, in London, those, well, not even London, in most places now, the, the rental market is really suffering because of things like airbnb mm-hmm. so you know there, there's there's enough money to fix some houses but there isn't enough money to fix some of the other rental properties mm. i mean it, it's just a system that seems to have forgotten that we need a a good rental market a good quality rental market with good private uh uh landlords mm-hmm. and also we need we need social housing to help people who are on low incomes um 
and good quality social housing, it has an impact. It has an impact on schools. It has an impact on, on the NHS. We have learned that now. You know, sending kids into school who've not been able to have a good night's sleep or been able to do their homework because their housing is cold. We have evidence now. We mm-hmm. understand the impact that, that, that this has on their education and their long-term outcomes. Um, we know that it costs the NHS billions because of cold mm-hmm. homes. So let's work together as a government. I mean, it just drives us bonkers that we mm. are not think that governments are still so siloed you know it's just the nhs thinking about the nhs or the department mm. of housing just thinking about housing we need systems to work together well i think un- it just needs a, a total rethink in terms of whoever is in charge of government uh, and instead of being uh, demand orientated we should be actually supply orientated because um to my understanding if we actually were to make more um, affordable housing and public housing, that will in itself increase you know the job opportunities. You know we can move towards uh, carbon zero, uh, more yep. eco-friendly housing, um, and that's got to be you know what we're looking for. I mean, it's not going to be I suppose you know a quick fix. You know, you're not talking about year two years, but you're looking at something which is maybe ten, twenty years down the line. But then you know, through that period, it's, it's having this uh, these periods of austerity, but actually having no uh, productivity during those periods of uh, austerity that you just don't take advantage of at the end. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many reports, you know, some of them we've written, which say it's a win, 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 win yeah. if you fix housing. You know, you're... You know, it's not just building new housing. Yes, that that has to be built. But really, most of the homes that will be here in 2050, I think something like the statistic is 80 or 85 percent of the homes that will exist in 2050 are already built. You know, where we so we have to fix the housing stock that's here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a priority. We have to make sure that it's as efficient. Uh, it will it will fix the housing stuff. It will address health inequalities. It will address mm. climate change. It will give people jobs. It will skill people up. It will build better communities. I mean, what it won't do. I mean, I just I'm with you. I don't really understand why this hasn't been a priority. I, I just mm. you'll have maybe, to maybe maybe the government's got other priorities, priorities really <laughs> that uh, yeah. we don't see as uh, yeah. kind of like the common people. Uh, I think Imran's got a uh, final question for you, Tammy. Yeah, Tammy. Okay. Um, how does your team help uh, to improve um, health equity with regards to fuel poverty? Well, um, it's a complex problem, but I think what we try to do is we try to break it down, and we've been working with local systems. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we worked across a, a number of areas in, in England, in Cheshire Merseyside, in Lancashire and Cumbria, and different parts of London. We're working in, in Gwent, in, in Wales right now. We've also... We share our best practice around the world as well, but this is, is an issue that's particular to the UK and, and certain countries. But we also, you know, we work with government to try and advise them on what to do. <laughs> um, sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's been a pleasure uh, speaking to you, Tammy. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon on The Drive Time Show. It's been really nice to talk to you. Thank Take you. Care. Thank and good you. luck to everyone. Yeah, Thanks. you too. Have a good day. 0208 78, uh, sorry, 0208 
687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And, you know, this is an easy conversation for uh, you, know, you guys, our listeners, to join mm-hmm. in. Just give us, you know, call us, call in and just, you know, just relate how it's feeling. Um, I mean, are you in that same situation whereby, you know, you're in a household where you have to actually decide, am I going to turn on the heating for a couple of hours or am I going to eat for the day because I mean to my understanding uh, Imran actually not my just my understanding most of um, you know media is coming out with just look at where we are in the economy or, or in the UK economy currently we're beset by strikes mm-hmm. we've got uh, currently I think uh, the RMT so that's the train striking we've got the nurses who are striking um, we've got lecturers who are striking we've got postmen who are striking it's quite a few kind of like um, groups yeah within uh, society striking and I think more than anything else uh, the Royal Nursing College was saying that uh, their members their nurses who are fully engaged they're working you know full shift they can't actually afford to eat I mean absolutely you uh, like mentioned beautifully you know a normal household is struggling you know uh, to you know uh, whether they have to choose uh, you know to, they can eat well or they can heat you know uh, heat uh, in their houses mm-hmm. and that's actually you know um, a very you know a bad effect on their mental health as well mm-hmm. so um, so this you know this can be a problem actually for your physical and mental health as well and uh, to unable to keep their um, home at a adequate temperature is likely to cause joint pain in the elderly people and reduce the ability uh, of your immune system to fight off infections and viruses so, you know it, it is very important to warm um, ha- ha- your house especially you know if you and the older people and kids if uh, live in your houses and there, there are some you know people who have a medical condition that makes it necessary for them to keep warm for example people uh, diagnosed with the uh, uh, elder and danson uh, syndrome um you know may have uh, chronic pain in their bodies moreover it is important that people with this syndrome have um inflammation around their bones so people in such situation have a weak immune system so not being able to access heating is a uh, in the house due to higher prices or uh, unavailability can be you know determined uh, very dangerous to their physical and mental health and similarly in children and in newborn babies um colder temperature can cause them to have a uh, cold or flu and it, it can cause their you know um cause a weakening of their immune system and if not taken care of this this may lead to a worsening of their uh, condition and may take them and uh, susceptible to more dangerous um, you know infections mm-hmm. so it's really help you know it's really um we need to look um the scenario and we need to look uh, you know uh, and, and we need to take care of the people mm. that are struggling i mean that's the thing i think one of the things uh, that dr tammy boyce was uh, just pointing out mm-hmm. that just simple you know if if actually you know the estimates are correct that 85% of housing stock which has been pre-planned to have been built by the year 2050 so that's only another what uh 28 years yeah. right and 85% has already been built mm-hmm. so there must be then therefore a problem with the stuff that's been built i.e. it's not up to standard right mm-hmm. and if you think about it modern living um 
and I think uh, one of the first questions we asked uh, Dr. Tammy was the, you know, the in social media you had a lot of. Um, the elder generation coming out and saying, look, you know what? We went through the winter of discontent in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It, it wasn't that big of a deal. Come mm-hmm. on, just get through this this winter. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we didn't have that amount of population. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So when I say modern living, so say, for instance, if we're talking about not rural areas, but if we're talking about urban areas, say, for instance, cities, mm-hmm. Then you're, you may well get more than, right? Say, for instance, in the Victorian house uh, in zone two of London, right? You've got about five bedrooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. back in Victorian times, okay, this is pre 70s, right? Mm-hmm. But in Victorian times, you'd have, what, maybe a family of four and a couple of servants. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So obviously, you've got room to, to live, it's well, it's well lit, it's well. Um, ventilated, it's well heated, right? Even back in Victorian times, it's well heated. But now, you've had these Victorian houses which have been converted. So, if you have a five-bedroom house within Zone 2, I'm pretty much sure that that is a HMO, right? If it's in in, in terms of the hands of a, a private landlord or a housing association has got uh, renting it out, it's a house of multiple occupancy. So you're going to get more than five people living there. You might get 10 people living there. So if you just think, okay, 10 people, how do they dry their clothes mm-hmm. in winter? Absolutely. How do you dry your clothes in winter, Imran? I mean, uh, um, I don't really do it. My mom does it. So I okay, don't really but how does she do it? I mean, she um, she's really struggled because uh, we, uh, we have a three-bedroom house yeah. and... Um, um, like we live um, four four people, um, uh, me, my mom, and uh, my dad and my brother. Mm. But uh, sometimes we really struggle, especially you know in winters. But you but, stick it on your radiators, right? Yes, yes. That's the simple thing, yeah, right? Yeah. Everyone uses their radiators mm-hmm. to dry their clothes. Right. So, can you imagine once you're drying your your clothes on the radiator, the humidity that has increased in your house, mm. and hence this is a humidity. Um, actually has the result of having uh, mold and condensation. Absolutely. It's very bad for you, you know. Uh, so you've you seen know. it, right? Yes. If you've yeah. seen it, I've seen it. Yeah. So we've seen it in our, our own houses. Mm-hmm. So can you imagine if you actually lived in a house whereby you had more than five, ten people in mm-hmm. that house? So if you just multiply that with their number of clothes, yeah, the radiators mm-hmm. are, are on. You've got all that humidity. So why why I'm laboring this point mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. actually trying to get back to Dr. Tammy's point about how condensation and mold, those mold spores, are an active, they're a living organism. And I think uh, she quoted that there was one poor child mm-hmm. who actually died from it, you know, having lung difficulties Certainly. and breathing yeah. difficulties mm-hmm. because of mold. And you would think, well, you know, how can you die from mold? Well, that's how you can die from mold. It's as simple as that. So if that is what we're facing because of inadequate uh, levels of housing stock, then we haven't got a very bright future, right? Yes. So... Absolutely. Um, I was, uh, you know, um, when researching on this topic, I actually, you know, um, amazed that, you know, 90 million uh, houses in the UK, they need better insulation. And this is one of the, you know, um, uh, um, big problem 
that we're facing. And also, um, if we talk about the renewable energy, mm-hmm. UK is much more winter than you know all other countries in the Europe, especially you know um, the Eastern Europe. So we need to really focus on you know windmills mm-hmm. and um, well, especially wind turbines. Wind, uh, wind turbines. <laughs> and, well, uh, we've got our next yeah. guest on online who is most probably going to be more of a adept at talking about this issue uh, than us. Uh, we've got a senior lecturer, uh, Dr. Tim Taylor. Uh, he's a senior lecturer in environmental and public health economics. He works in the University of Exeter. His main research interest lies in the evaluation of environment and health endpoints uh, in policy analysis and in the use of economic instruments to improve the environment. Peace be upon you, uh, Dr. Tim Taylor. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show this afternoon. Thanks a lot. It's nice to join you. So we're talking about the energy crisis. Um, you know, and will we actually have to have lights out this Christmas or this winter? I mean, what does it mean, or what, you know, if you, if you can clarify for our listeners out there, what does it mean by a flexible, warm standard? I mean, who actually sets this standard, and can this standard be the same for everyone? Well, the current WHO, the World Health Organization, standard for, for keeping uh, homes warm and ensuring people's health within them is around 18 degrees uh, centigrade for healthy individuals. Um, So what we were looking at in in the SmartLine project was was if we could find um, that for people who weren't so healthy or for healthy individuals to see if we could find uh, a standard of of temperature that, that would be uh, suitable for for improving well-being and health. Um, and what what we found was putting we put 300 sensors, 300 homes. Um, we installed sensors in 300 homes for mm-hmm. temperature and humidity. Um, we conducted a range of well-being questionnaires with uh, people in in um, social housing, um, and we found that for those with long-term health conditions then 17 degrees may be a good minimum temperature, mm-hmm. while for healthier individuals then the 18-degree WHO standard may be appropriate. So when you say, uh, so basically either between 17 and 18 is the optimum um, uh, warm standard for our homes. That's right, that's right. So having this flexible warm standard rather than Rather than just setting it fixed at, at 18, mm-hmm. you might need to consider keeping it, it um, keep it, keeping the, the house uh, warmer for for, um, for for certain individuals. Mm. Because I, I mean, when you came out with 17, 18, straight away, my the image of my mother-in-law popped into my head, and her thermostat is set at 23. So yeah. that's a bit high. I mean, I, I find it a bit high anyway. As soon as I step into her, her, her flat, um, it does feel yeah. You, know, you feel this kind of like it's like an oven. Let's put it that way. But um, I think uh, Martin Lewis, who's the you know the money saving guru on TV, has actually you know broken, well, bent his back trying to find um, ways and means to for everyone to actually. Um, save 
or be as efficient with their fuel bills. And he came out with a figure of around about, you know, people don't really need uh, to heat their homes anything above 19 degrees. So that would, I suppose, fall uh, within that remit of the WHO standard. And that's right. But, but then, then again, people do have their, their preferences for warmth and certain individuals um, prefer it to be warmer in their homes. Um, but then they may also uh, consider, instead of warming the home, warming the individual. So mm-hmm. uh, you, know, you might think about uh, getting your, your mother-in-law a, a heated throw or, or, mm-hmm. or, or um, hot water or, bottle, or some, some <laughs> other some other things to, 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 so that so that she can feel warm mm-hmm. while being in a, in a cooler home. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Tim, um, in your research, you found that, you know, um, fuel poverty can severely affect people's mental health. Why is that? Well, fuel poverty really impacts on people in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's in terms of physical comfort, because you feel that you should have the, the temperature lower than, than maybe you'd like to, and so you're, you're uncomfortable. Then there's the issues of stress that people have relating to the bills and the financial worries and also the worries about health associated with this as well. Um, and, and then we can consider also the psychosocial re- reasons. Mm-hmm. So things about people not feeling able to invite people into a cold home. Uh, so your mother-in-law may keep it warm because she feels that that's what people like to come into. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so um those those factors are important for for health uh, impacts from uh, fuel poverty now there are also of course wider impacts on uh, health through the impacts on the indoor environment and you've been talking about some of those you know things like uh, the risks of mold growth mm-hmm. uh, the odors associated with mold um, and uh, also things like the actual physical impacts through things like the impacts on the cardiovascular system. So there have been mm-hmm. studies that show there's increased heart attack risk in, in colder homes and also stroke risk in, in the colder homes, as well as the respiratory outcomes like asthma. Mm. So, uh, Dr. Taylor, what are some flexible temperature-based approaches uh, that could be taken to actually improve uh, during this fuel, well, during this crisis of fuel poverty, well, you, we've been talking a bit about things like setting thermostats appropriately, mm-hmm. but you can also use thermostats on radiators to keep different rooms at, at slightly different temperatures to to, to help um, reduce the the energy bills. Um, you, and I think it's also important that we ensure that we give appropriate support to those who have uh, long-term disabilities or maybe um, have lower incomes to ensure that they get help with their fuel bills. Now, in the Smartline project, we've been uh, working particularly with coastline housing. Um, and, and, and they're a social housing provider in the southwest. And with them, we've been looking at the possibility of installing monitors in homes um, and, and there they can see on a dashboard um, both the residents and, and coastline housing those those um, 
houses where the temperatures are falling below the, the safe standards. So, so it, it kind of flashes up on a dashboard to say, you know, red, red light comes on. And, and then if, if it keeps on going for a couple of days, and then they pick up the phone and ask, well, are you okay? Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there additional support you need, for instance, in terms of accessing grants for energy efficiency measures? Or, um, or do you need help accessing uh, poverty reduction uh, um, kind of support? Mm-hmm. Um, so those kind of measures can really make a difference mm-hmm. and, and give people um, help. Mm. In, in reducing the, the impacts of fuel poverty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, Dr. Tim, while conducting your research, have you seen or heard of any interesting ways people have found to cope with, with you know, um, full, um, fuel poverty? Well, we, we know that you can reduce the risks through improving energy efficiency, as you were talking about just before this interview. Mm-hmm. So, things like um, improving insulation, um, in, ensuring that um, you cut down on drafts, having uh, double glazing. These kind of things can reduce energy bills and so reduce fuel poverty. Um, but it's important that we bear in mind that when we're doing energy efficiency measures, um, we, we have to consider what we're doing to the whole, whole home. So um, often when you're installing energy efficiency measures, you can end up sealing the home up. And that's not a great thing for health um, because if you reduce ventilation, you uh, increase the moisture in the home and that causes issues such as mold growth mm-hmm. and uh, reduced respirat- resp- respiratory health in particular. Um, other things that can be done are things like exercising more in the home mm-hmm. and um, and heating individuals, heating people rather than heating, heating the rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, but really there's no one-size-fits-all solution to this and you know we're getting into a time of year where it's getting colder, the energy bills are so high at the moment mm-hmm. and there may be need for us to consider real structural changes to 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 change the situation mm-hmm. um, yeah. um in your paper dr taylor yeah one of the factors associated uh with mental health and fuel poverty is actually gender now why do you think gender would be or is a factor in this i mean you know are issues of mental health and fuel poverty more prevalent uh in men or women i mean why is that the case well, we think there may be a relationship here between health, your poverty, indoor environments, and women in particular, mm-hmm. because of factors like the time spent indoors, okay. um, the additional exposures that women face because of traditional gender roles. So, for instance, caring or mm-hmm. or cleaning, or if you're thinking about mold, then. Um, often cleaning is seen as being a, a, something that, that women are, um, are more likely to be tasked with within the house. And, that, and I'm not saying that's a right thing or a wrong thing, but that, that act of cleaning mold is actually giving you a big, big exposure. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, and and there, there are also uh, physiological differences in the way people feel cold. 
and the the there there may also be issues relating to what we call in economics the intra-household distribution of resources. So what does that mean? Well, that means that when money is tight, sometimes mothers or women reduce their food intake uh, more, um, or they may give themselves uh, less treats and other things to give uh, to give things to, to their kids or to, to their families. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can have an impact on uh, mental and physical health as well. Hmm. So really what we really need to be doing is to be taking action to support those most in need. You know, it's getting colder. Hmm. And uh, though people are getting increasingly concerned with uh, energy prices, we need to ensure that they're enabled to stay warm, healthy and happy. And that, that includes women, it includes um, the elderly, it includes the disabled and, uh, uh, and the unemployed and those on low incomes. Hmm. We, we really need to be together as a community in, in tackling these energy, uh, the energy crisis that we're facing. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well, uh, Dr. Taylor, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you very much for joining us on The Drive Time Show. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks Have a good day. Me. Bye. Bye. 0208 687 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And I think, uh, Imran, you were just uh, before Dr. Taylor came on mm-hmm. talking about renewable energy. Yeah. Um, and on that note, you know, the End uh, Fuel Poverty Coalition uh, is actually a campaign that urges the government to increase investment in renewable energy and in home insulation. Uh, both things which uh, uh, both our guests have actually uh, alluded to. Now, building and running solar energy and wind energy is cheaper than using gas or fossil fuels and more eco-friendly, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, Therefore, an increased amount of energy from renewable energy sources uh, is more than likely to reduce the cost of uh, or our dependency on gas uh, and a cheaper form of electricity. It's critical to consider that we can do or what we can do to encourage the use of renewable energy sources within our community at a local level. Now, community energy covers aspects of collective action to reduce, purchase, manage and generate energy. Um, now, it, uh, Community energy projects have an emphasis on local engagement, uh, local leadership and local control and hence the benefits are at community level and uh, benefit the community at uh, the grassroots level. Uh, Along with government efforts at the global and national uh, level, uh, local efforts by the community will will enhance the benefits of using renewable energy. Uh, The ways in which uh, we can produce renewable energy are highly active Uh, are a highly active area of research. I mean, just recently, uh, scientists in Switzerland built transparent solar cells that can be inserted in people's windows. Uh, They're made of transparent photosensitizers, uh, which capture all the light in the visible spectrum that can be used to make energy. Uh, The advantage of this, it can be installed in more urban areas, Uh, where empty land isn't available to build large solar panels. Uh, Despite a lot of advantages, uh, it's important to consider the issues associated with renewable energy, namely uh, the actual reliability of it. Uh, What happens when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow 
I mean, you know, how will they meet the energy demand then? But I believe that, um, you know, in terms of, say, for instance, solar uh, or uh, EV cells, mm-hmm. the technology is such that even if it doesn't shine, it's still generating a modicum of uh, electricity. Yeah. And those uh, panels are actually... The, the the energy that's held in those uh, panels go to a capacitor and then go to the grid. So uh, I only know this. It sounds quite technical because we've actually just put solar cells or solar panels up in Hong Kong on 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 our house in Hong Kong, and you know it doesn't shine. You know the sun isn't shining every moment of the day there. We have torrential rain, but even in those times of rain. We're still producing electricity, okay. so I think the technology is there. It's just whether, you know, the government uh, and I suppose us at local level have the inclination to to make that step. I mean, is there any, you know, Islamic viewpoint regarding this? Yes, absolutely. Um, so, um, indeed, these these are very difficult times, and you know, um, but it is important to always have faith in God Almighty. One particular verse which I really liked uh, in the Holy Quran, um, it says that. You know, um, um, and we will try you with something of fear and hunger and loss of wealth and lives and fruits, but give glad tidings to the patient. So in this verse, uh, you know, and the 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 model of the world have been, you know, um, placed that, you know, in this world you have to face difficulties, but there is there is a glad tiding for the for the one who is patient and mm-hmm. through this through that we can you know learn that obviously we're not going to get you know best of our life obviously we, ha- we have to face difficulties in in our life in order to you know and uh, to build um, a higher status of ourselves and in order in order to build um, one's faith in in uh, Allah the Almighty so Islam uh, teach that whenever you face difficult life uh, contentment is very important believe in Allah is very important and Always remember that after every dif- every difficulty, there is ease. Mm, there is ease, and uh, Allah, the Almighty, does give you ease with that. And you know, it's that you know sometimes we do tend to forget, and we're really concentrating on the material, mm-hmm. and it's understandable. You know, you feel cold, you want to heat up your right. house, right? right, right. Um, but there are some lessons to be learned, and you know, to to actually uh, reach out. To your Creator mm-hmm. uh, gives you that hope that you know there will be Absolutely. there will be an end to this crisis. Okay. Uh, but with that, we're going to go to the five o'clock news. Join us after the five o'clock news, where we will be talking about volunteers. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamualaikum, peace and blessing to our listeners out there. Welcome back to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imam Imran Akram. So we're talking in our second hour about volunteers. Um, and uh, just quite briefly about volunteers. I mean, Allah says in the Holy Quran, and this is in chapter 3, verse 111, O people of Islam, you are the best people ever raised for the good of mankind, because you have been raised to serve others. You enjoin what is good and forbid evil and believe in Allah. So why... You know, we've well. Why I've quoted that particular verse mm-hmm. is that uh, today, December the fifth uh, of every year, marks the International Volunteer Day for Economic and Social Development, uh, and in the, uh, it's an actual international observance mandated by the UN uh, UN General Assembly back in 1985. Mm-hmm. Now, this year's theme is solidarity through volunteering. 
with poverty, conflict and environmental concerns uh, on the rise globally, uh, not just domestically. Uh, mm -hmm. Humanity needs to come together now more than ever for the sole purpose of the greater good. Now, in 2021, 62% of respondents to the Community Life Survey, uh, Survey said that they had volunteered in some way in the last 12 months. Um, that's approximately 28 million people in England. Now, of these, approximately 19 million people volunteered at least once a month. Now, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, emphasized love, sympathy and kindness towards all. He also emphasized that we must show each other great appreciation. He said, oh, one who is not grateful to mankind is not grateful to Allah. So, um, you know, what better to, or who better to speak to regarding uh, mm -hmm. volunteering is our first guest of the day who is Kaleem Edwards, who is also a member of the uh, our community, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Now, uh, Kaleem will be talking to us regarding our, our own uh, charity, Humanity First. Peace and blessings be upon you, Kaleem. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Salam, yes. Thanks very much for having us. Well, always a pleasure and <laughs> never, never a chore. <laughs> so uh, regarding volunteers uh, and being the National Volunteer or the International Volunteer Day today, can you please briefly explain what Humanity First does uh, and where does, your, or where does the organisation operate and who do you help? Right, well, basically, we, our motto is serving mankind. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of people. And okay. we've got to be all over the place. Everyone. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> Everywhere. Wherever there's need. Right. Uh, so if you don't need uh, help, we, we shouldn't come to your aid. But, okay. uh, you know, should you, should you uh, experience difficulties, we'll be there in a flash. Okay. That's, the, that, that's the idea. But basically, <laughs> since 1995, we've been, um, you know, we started out in a Kosovan crisis as a, as a non-sectarian um, uh, organization to help those in need in, the, in that Bosnian crisis mm -hmm. so delivering food parcels uh, stuff like that and, and as time went on we moved away or we not only did disaster uh, response and war uh, response scenarios we also started doing things like doing eye operations and building mm -hmm. water wells and and food banks in various countries and that and that's kind of where we are uh, at the moment we've sort of diversified and, and have a number of different uh, areas of expertise but people will so everyone's got their favorite campaign you know like, I, I love the water wells it's mm -hmm. lovely to sort of a great christmas present and or you know seasonal gift to um to to buy your uh your i sense, I sense an ad coming here uh, well clearly. exactly i was just saying <laughs> what better gift for your mother exactly say, mum for 2023 i'm buying you a water well and here's Here's a picture with your name on it. So mm -hmm. It's a wonderful mm -hmm. uh, gift to do. Or you've um, bought some, ten eye operations, mm -hmm. or um, a couple of know. bricks in 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 a in a hospital. It sounds like you've read the same advert that I have. You know, so <laughs> Ivory Coast, for example, we're exactly. building this hospital. You know, so, so go and get yourself a brick uh, and, mm -hmm. and, and your name, and, and hopefully you'll never go to the ho to hospital, <laughs> but your <laughs> but your aid will have gone there. So I think it's a, such a wonderful um, opportunity. You know, mm -hmm. so you know. Take a year off having a, a, an iPhone upgrade, and you know, and there's your thousand pound, or there's your five hundred pound, or whatever. So I really think it's a great value thing. Yeah, I, I, that was a bit of an unnecessary kind of like uh, cash for Apple, but we'll let you go with that one. Well, exactly. Yeah, you know, other brands may make it. <laughs> but also, just give us uh, and you know, our listeners an idea as to the breadth of 
uh, coverage that uh, you know, Humanity First uh, is in, i.e., you know, how many countries are we or do we have a representation? Yeah, I think we're now at over 70 countries now. Wow. Um, so it's, it's, and it ticks up every year. I mean, so, you know, like it wasn't long ago that we didn't have Australia, for example. Now mm-hmm. there's an Australian outfit there. So, and I know, you know, New Zealand, they're doing, um, you know, food pass for various people. So even in developed countries like New Zealand, Australia, there's still a requirement uh, for, for aid. And, and, you know, we're always sort of uh, building other countries um, uh, along. So if the, I know this is a big global audience as well. So mm-hmm. if, if maybe you don't think your country's represented, then, you know, we're always looking for people to put that, that little blue hat on and, mm-hmm. and start doing it. And, and I think that's one of the real unique selling points of, of Humanity First is that every member of the Amdi Muslim Association has got Humanity First written inside them. They've either mm-hmm. given money to charity or they've helped out at one of our events. Uh, or they've donated, or in a disaster uh, area like Indonesia, all of our community were straight out into their vehicles and helping people in the tsunami, for example. Mm. And, and this is where the UN and, and all these big uh, World Health Organizations, they absolutely love local contacts. There's mm. no point a load of um, you know, middle-aged white fellows like me going out there and telling, telling the locals, well, no, you're doing it all wrong, you need to do X, Y, and Z. <laughs> They now realize that uh, local is best. So the local knowledge, so Indonesians who speak the language and and know how it all works, are the best people to help Indonesia, for Mm -hmm. example, and in Africa. That's why a lot of our our drilling teams, you know, we're getting local people to do it because they are best suited uh, for it. There's no point, um, Mm -hmm. you know, us going over there. And the thing is, my flight to Africa, for example, you know, that money could easily be spent on buying uh, buying a brick for an Ivory Coast uh, um, hospital. So Mm. there's always that, you know. I'm sure there's more than just one brick. Yes, exactly. We're going to need a few. We're (laughs) going to need need a few. few. uh, Or it's now onto a roof, so it might be starting roof tiles shortly. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, So, Kaleem, how essential um, are volunteers to your organisation? Without volunteers, we stop dead. Simple Mm -hmm. as that. You know, and unlike most charities... They, lot volunteers are the lifeblood, um, and, and, and so that's why we'd urge people. Now, it could be that you're a medical person, you're an eye surgeon, and that's great. Or it could be that you're an engineer, and, and you're, or whatever. But, and, and I know that we've mentioned there about we like local people to help, but there's also, you know, certainly for my children, but when they were going through A-levels, um, we sent them out for a, a month in Gambia. Now, mm-hmm. it looks great for the family. Um, it looks great on their CV, and they got an amazing life experience. Mm. Both, both my sons were able to talk, you know, passionately about an experience. Now, you know, I, it goes a little, you know, they, they're, they're helping local people. They're also being helped by local people mm-hmm. in that they're getting that experience. And so the volunteer works both ways. Mm-hmm. You, vol- you donate your time. You get a, a, an enriching experience for yourself, so it really is a win-win for, for both parties. So that's mm. why I'd urge people, if you know, if you've got a, a son or daughter that's thinking about, you know, well, what can I do to make my, uh, you know, Duke of Edinburgh award or blah blah blah, put on my CV. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that really stands out is that you say, okay, well, say maybe you can't go to Gambia, but you could definitely go and spend a week in our in our in Yorkshire at our mm-hmm. food bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know what I mean? That would be a real tangible thing. You can get, you know, go and uh, get, go and spend some time in, in, 
our two UK food banks. Mm. Uh, Vs. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> or Sadiq from uh, the from the uh, from the um, West Midlands yeah. um, scenario. So you know, mm. and he's an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. So you yeah. you could uh, learn about medical stuff <laughs> as well. So really, it, you know, the volunteer gets so much, and and without that volunteer hours. Um, you know, we're, we're stuck. So if you look at our boards, our boards are not full of highly paid six. Some of these, I mean, there was a bit of criticism of children in need in that some of their directors are on six-figure salaries. And obviously they're a massive charity and with loads of money and scrutiny. But, you know, if you count up how many, you know, six-figure salaries are on their payroll, that's a lot of money. Whereas mm. Humanity First do not have that. We just do not have fully paid um, accountant, bean counters, mm-hmm. uh, auditors, all of those people are volunteers. So mm-hmm. you think about the time that they give up every month, every year uh, to do that work. It's mm-hmm. fabulous. And, and that means that money spent to Humanity First goes much, much, much further. Yeah, it's actually the, the pound that you spend through Humanity First is actually the majority of that pound. Yeah, it's absolutely. not chiseled away by admin costs or any other costs. Yeah, um, and our, H- our headquarters is paid for, so it's not, we're not even paying interest on our mortgage anymore. So no, we excellent. own our building, so, <laughs> so, so we don't have to make, uh, you know, uh, look at that, the, the blessings of Allah, you know, we, mm. we, we paid that off, so we're not, um, interest rates are going up, we're not going to be impacted by that, for mm. example. Mm. So, yeah, you, you touched on it regarding the hours per year. I mean, can you give us an approximate figure of, you know, the hours per year uh, that I actually volunteered? For yeah, humanity well, it, first, it's a and is, well, there, uh, is, is there a monetary value that you can put on? Yeah, this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and we work very closely with uh, the old age concern in Kingston, Staywell, and they mm-hmm. actually put a monetary number of, you know, say you say the minimum wage. Right. So if you said that there are, you know, said it's 40 people uh, working, you know, every week in the UK, maybe, maybe 50 people every week mm-hmm. in the UK um, doing that, and there's 50 weeks a year, so mm-hmm. 50 times 40 times 10. Mm-hmm. That's your number. That's your monetary value that you could. Have. But some of those people are, you know, highly paid accountants. Well, you could argue that, you know, the account person is going to be on more than ten pounds. Mm-hmm. And you know, the surgeon that has donated his time. And you know, we had uh, Dr. Hamada and his team went to mm-hmm. Gambia and yeah, training. You know, like, well, you know, can't charge them out of ten pounds an hour. So it's very tricky from a balance sheet perspective. What do you, what value do you ascribe? It's not like. No disrespect to um, charity shops like Oxfam, but person serving behind a till there—that's a clear, you know, minimum wage sort of um, mm-hmm. salary. Then you could argue, but some of the stuff we do is, or some of our directors and stuff, you know, it's really, you know, it's being heavily underpaid if we put a, 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 a theoretical minimum million value. So. It is tricky how to balance that and then how to judge what the monetary value is. But, you know, worst case scenario, you say £10 uh, an hour, um, mm. we, we would do. And I don't, it's one of those things that um, it's a bit of a debate in, you know, should we be, you know, how do we put that in our uh, annual report, stuff like that. So I'm pushing for it, I, you know, and let's see what happens. But mm. you, you should know that uh, the other way of looking at it is, Let's look at the salary bill for Oxfam, for Save the Children, for what, and look at the salary bill for Humanity First. Mm-hmm. I think that tells its own tale, it, mm-hmm. it, you know. And know that if there are no salaried people, then who's doing the work? And you, you know, and the, and the proof in the pudding, the work is getting done, and it's getting done mainly by volunteers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in the beginning, you mentioned that you know, Humanity First can't be existed without volunteering people. Do you find them easily and uh, 
What is your message uh, to the listeners who are who are you know um, some of the listeners willing to you know volunteer themselves for twenty first? Yeah, I mean uh, this is the, this is the situation. There are many projects that um, you know we would love to do more of, and maybe maybe can't through lack of volunteers. Mm-hmm. For I'll give you an example. I'd love to, and, and my son's benefited from a, a Wandsworth football and maths program. So someone, they would, the children would come, they would play football mm-hmm. for an hour, and they would do half an hour's maths, for example. We'd like, one thing I'd like to do, okay. uh, and if anyone's in London would like to help out with this project, <laughs> is do any maths and football fans come forward to help <laughs> run this course? I've got to say, Kaleem, it's a bit of a weird <laughs> kind of like uh, dynamic there. Maths well, and... You know, mass and, uh, and football. Are you are you looking at trajectories of how to get the ball in the top right corner? It, well, it was actually just they play football and then they do some math. <laughs> so it was one of the council trying to get people uh, incentivised to do mathematics. Right. Okay. But if you if you look at it, single mothers, for example, might be really keen for their their children to learn mathematics, for mm-hmm. example. But the kids not really motivated. But the football, they might be interested. So yeah, yeah. projects like that require humans. They require dedication they require someone to come and say right i'm going to do 10 weeks of this i'll be the math teacher right i'll be the football organizer mm-hmm. so if you as a family as a group of friends said you know what i'll do that project they feel free if you've got any wacky ideas you know come to us we're definitely looking for people to come up with smart ideas mm-hmm. and, and innovative projects you know one of them is is that for example so yes we have um you know we're always looking for for new volunteers um the Food banks require humans. Um, you know, we'd like to do an eBay shop, for example. You know, but all of that requires um, you know patient time and effort. So we're really, if you've got any interest, please, please come to me. I'm Chris Edwards at UKHumanityFirst.org.uk. So mm-hmm. feel free to uh, come up with your ideas or, or volunteer yourself. And like I say, going out to Africa, going to Guatemala, um, going overseas, you would pay for your travel. But, mm-hmm. you know, when you get out there, you would be, you know, looked after in um, Amdi Muslim Association accommodation and... Uh, royally. Uh, I, royally. The, the royally. Non-stop, unlimited doll. <laughs> <laughs> yes, doll and roti. Well, yeah. Kaleem, uh, or Chris, whichever you like. No, whichever. Uh, I've got two mothers. They call me, one calls me one, one calls me the other. So exactly. I'll, I'll accept anything. <laughs> uh, with the dual moniker. Chris, yeah. uh, thank you. It's always thank a pleasure you. to talk to you on the oh. drive time. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining no us this afternoon. Darling. So that's uh, 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. So if you heard the words there from uh, Kaleem Edwards, you know, you can volunteer uh, even a couple of hours uh, a week. It it makes a difference. Um, And it does because uh, I know we've, I think, just got a new... uh, Humanity First food bank in East London. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't need to go... Uh, a million miles abroad uh, to do you know what's right to help humanity to help your brother you can just go into east london which might seem a million miles away to some people but uh you know the other side of the world but you know just to help in a food bank because you know it's it's got to that situation in the uk now where whereby even if you have a job um i, I think i just quoted the the nurses mm-hmm. earlier on uh, from the royal nursing college they say a lot of their members who are working a full shift, uh, a full week, are still having to go to a food bank. And that is, I find, a deplorable situation to be in, uh, given that we are supposedly the sixth biggest uh, 
um, nation uh, according to our GDP. I mean, um, if you you're talking about the food bank, we have uh, in this very building where we broadcasting our radio station in Battle for Two, we have food bank here as well. If uh, someone wants to, you know, um, donate some food, uh, they can. And if uh, you know, you can donate um, online as well. Mm-hmm. If you can go to, you know, chanda.org, you can donate food there as well for the food for the. Uh, food bank and they will buy food for you and they will deliver to the needy people. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. a really good idea if you can't yeah. uh, physically do it. Yeah. But when, when we're talking about the uh, community, our Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, Hazrat Mirza Gulen Ahmed, may Allah be uh, pleased with him, said, the teachings of the Holy Quran can be divided into two major categories. The first being unity of God, <laughs> love and obedience to him, the second is to treat kindly your brothers and fellow human beings. Be kind and merciful to humanity. Always work for the good of mankind. Now, the promised Messiah uh, had a great compassion for mankind. He said, sympathy for all mankind is a moral obligation and a duty. That religion is no religion which does not inculcate sympathy, nor does that man deserve to be called a man who does not have sympathy in him so you know as muslims uh, i mean you know you're an imam so this should be kind of like uh, second nature to you but mm-hmm. you know what is our second precept uh, as according to god our first is you know there is but one god mm-hmm. And our next duty is to our fellow human being. Absolutely. There's, I mean, if you want to sum up religion, every religion, regardless of Islam, or there's always, you know, um, two, two main points of religion. is One is serving God, and second is serving humanity. And you, you know, quoted, you know, that in the Promised Messiah, that he, he says that uh, the religion which does not uh, toward um, sympathy with mankind, it, it isn't the true religion. And I like to, you know, um, quote one of his own incident, um, which I think are very interesting for the for our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so it says, um, one day some village woman came to the Promised Messiah as to obtain some medicine for their children. The Promised Messiah uh, remained busy in attending to them and giving them medicine. Molvi Abdul Karim Sahib um, submitted, Your Holiness, this is a great inconvenience to you. And much of your valuable time is wasted. The Promised Messiah said, This too is, is religious work. This too is religious work. These are people in need. There is no hospital nearby. It is for the sake of these people that I order and store all sorts of medicine, and um, which proves um, you know, beneficial when the time comes. So this is a task that brings great spiritual reward. So this is his own example, you know. He, mm-hmm. Although he was a very busy man, but he still, you know, um, have a, a take time out and, you know, uh, give people medicine and um, serve humanity. Mm. I mean, and that's, the, I think, the point with our first guest of the day, uh, Kaleem Edwards, that, you know, you volunteering and you being a volunteer, the benefits are manifest uh, when you give up your time and you're helping humanity, no matter how you know large or small. Um, and I think he quoted certain members of the community who had actually gone abroad mm-hmm. to help with the eye clinic, to help with the water wells. They themselves are at the zenith of their own professions. Uh, but to actually go and be able to um, help 
um, more deserving uh, areas of not just uh, our society here in the UK, but those societies that are abroad. Um, I mean, you know, just the idea that we, uh, humanity first, have a representation in over 70 countries now. And I know mm -hmm. that even the, the most uh, recent, uh, the most recent um, conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine, Humanity First were one of the first um, responders uh, in terms of charity at the Polish border. So mm -hmm. it's it's amazing to think that, or you know, for those of us who are umming and ahhing as to whether to volunteer our time, you know, we're we're just what are you giving up? Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned Humanity First. They are, they are serving uh, the you know Poland Polish border and um, so many other parts of the um, country. And I just remember one of the sayings of the of the Holy Prophet and he said that uh, putting a smile on one's face is also a form of charity. Mm. And if you know you if you can't do a big thing or if you know you can't do a, like you go abroad and serve um, people there, you can just have a talk with people. And there are so much you know. Um, loneliness in society, in our society today mm -hmm. there are actually i've saw an ad on the tv which is you know um there are very elderly people you know they need to talk to someone mm -hmm. you can call them and you know, have a have a good chat with them so mm -hmm. it's another form of volunteering and also um um as i said that our very religion says that uh, and to have a nice discussion with someone and uh, it's a form of charity Mm -hmm. So it shouldn't be like, you know, that um, you you cannot, you know, uh, it shouldn't be like that you cannot go f for a very farm in Africa and, uh, um, you know, volunteer uh, yourself there. It can be next door, maybe some people are very needy. You can go and ask them if you need any help and uh, with any, um, any kind of help, regardless of uh, whether they need uh, help in food or uh, in anything, mm -hmm. so I think it's uh, all about serving uh, in a in a way that uh, which is in your capacity. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you know, we have uh, just when we look at, uh, for instance, our own charity here for the community, Humanity First. You know, the projects that uh, I mean, they're, they're, I, I, I don't want to sound you know as I'm dissing that project, mm -hmm. but from the wacky type, yeah of which uh, Chris has just said, football and maths. And, you know, the actual idea behind it is amazing because, you know, how else are you going to tempt uh, someone to do maths, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a kid and you're, you know, you're lagging behind. And given, you know, the uh, situation that a lot of households are finding themselves in this winter, especially uh, with this, uh, this cost of living crisis, whether it be... Uh, food poverty, whether it be fuel poverty, then what better avenue to escape, hmm. right? Uh, for a couple of hours, you know, even if it's an hour, uh, you know, to let your child, you know, join, a, you know, a group, because we still have those um, uh, within the community, whether it be a scout group, whether it be a church group, whether it be, you know, our local mosque functions, where you can come, uh, spend an hour, chat with a few people, do an activity, right? And that in itself engages you and takes away that loneliness, that boredom. Absolutely. And ultimately, it's human beings are social animals. Absolutely. And we need to have 
that uh, bond with each other, that bond with God. But to speak more about volunteering, we're actually joined by uh, our next guest of the day, Sanjay Lobo. Now, Sanjay is the CEO of On Hand, uh, the impact app and all-in-one tool which allows employees to engage with environmental and social good. Peace be upon you, uh, Sanjay. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Thanks very much for inviting me. Great to be here. Thank you. So, you know, on this uh, day of international volunteering or celebrating uh, volunteering internationally, uh, you know, what is the concept of corporate volunteering? Yeah, thank you for asking. So um, many companies give employees time off uh, to go and do good things. I think the stat is something like 70% of the FTSE 100 uh, give their staff paid time off to go and volunteer. So it's very, very common for big companies to have these policies and allow uh, employees to take time off. Um, and it's not always used very well. So, so the policies are there, but it's not always utilised very well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Sanjay, on that note, what is digital volunteering? Well, um, you can remote, uh, you can you can volunteer remotely or, or in person locally. Mm-hmm. And I think during COVID, there was a, a quite a, quite a large rise in the popularity of remote volunteering. Obviously, because folks couldn't go out, uh, that could be things like um, befriending calls for elderly folks or uh, companionship calls. Um, potentially, it could be youth mentoring that's done uh, via, you know, a Zoom call mm-hmm. by by your screen. Mm-hmm. So things like that became much more popular during COVID. Um, and the thing we do on hand is we we enable it, um, I guess, with technology. So things like uh, we have an app, a bit like using I don't know, something like Deliveroo, where you're browsing for mm-hmm. uh, uh, something to do that's good. You know, it's, it's like browsing for a takeaway, but you find an opportunity to do good in your local area or remotely. Mm-hmm. So, Sanjay, you know, what are, uh, you know, if you can just outline them, uh, because they're pretty, I suppose, a no-brainer, but for our listeners out there, you know, what are some of the benefits of corporate volunteering? Yeah, right. So, uh, so many companies give their, their staff uh, time off, and there's, there's benefits for both the business and for the employee. As an employee, hey, you get you get to have some purpose in, in your job, and not all, not all jobs are completely purposeful. So, hey, having something that gives you purpose uh, that your company is typically paying paying you to go and do is kind of wonderful in itself. But the benefits you get as an individual are also um, pretty phenomenal. So um, I guess helping others, long lots of studies, lots of anecdotal feedback around that makes you feel it makes 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 you feel good helping other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's massive well-being aspects to it. But potentially you can also learn new life skills or make new friends. And so there's plenty of volunteering opportunities where you can use new skills if you want to test them out. Um, but many of the volunteers with us, hey, they, they make lifelong friends, um, calling the same people every week or going to visit the same people they're helping every week. Um, lots of friendships blossom from, from that kind of thing as well. Mm-hmm. For the corporates, for the employers, there's plenty of benefits too. The whole rise of uh, corporate social responsibility and right now it's, it's ESG, environmental social governance, mm-hmm. that's had a massive, uh, I guess, rising tide over the last couple of years. So it's now the kind of thing that's on the radar for most large companies and increasingly small and medium-sized businesses too. That having environmental or social good impacts is, is now, um, I guess, part of senior executives' bonus structures. Mm-hmm. So the, the impact for businesses is also huge, having you know environmental or social good impacts. And actually, 
that coming into the bonus structures for, for employees as well. Mm. So I suppose, you know, that idea or uh, corporate responsibility is the image that they want to portray to us, the consumers, to be more ethical, I suppose. Oh, totally agree. So, um, we used to have a lot of um, companies come to us, and especially during COVID, to help engage their employees. And it's a lot about well-being. Mm-hmm. And it's really shifted. It's really shifted in the last year where companies actually want to be much more responsible. It's a noticeable shift in the world that they recognize they need need to be uh, socially responsible and, and, and be seen to be socially responsible. Mm-hmm. And that's because you know their customers demand it, their employees are demanding it. But increasingly, it's, it's also the business leaders themselves recognizing businesses as a force for good is a huge thing and, and really important for where we are with so many societal issues and you know, mm-hmm. climate change issues as well. Mm-hmm. So Sanjay, um, is volunteering during uh, work hours allowed and uh, are employers still paid when this happened? Yeah, very much so. So it does depend on the policy that a company puts in place. Um, taking the examples of uh, the, the largest companies, the FTSE 100, yeah, those, those policies typically one to three days paid time off to go and volunteer. Mm-hmm. It's paid time off, but it does depend on what policy the company puts in place. I'd say very typical is paid time off. Mm-hmm. And uh, so finally... What, I mean, sorry, I say what, but how important are volunteers to your cause? Yeah, so everything we do at On Hand is it's all about impact. We very much started in the elderly space, helping elderly neighbours with, you know, getting their shopping or changing a light bulb or even something as basic as taking a bin out. But, you know, the things mm-hmm. that get a bit, bit tougher when you get older and not everyone's got family around. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we've, we've grown from there to do youth mentoring and, climate action and a whole range of other activities. Um, without the volunteers, none of it's possible. I think I think the really good news is the demand for volunteering is incredibly strong. I think it's always been there. People want to do good in the past. It's just been really hard to find those opportunities and then find the time to, to do it. And um, so part of what we do is also look at micro-volunteering. How can you volunteer in you know, 15 minutes or half an hour in really short bursts? But it gets people active, It gets them doing good and hopefully it uh, helps our society and the planet as well. Mm, excellent. Well, um, thank you, Sanjay, for joining us. It's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. So 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam uh, Voice of Islam UK. But just quickly before our next guest, we actually uh, have an Insta story um, and we put a question out there. Where have you volunteered? So we've we've actually had some uh, replies. Uh, Zisha, uh, sorry, Zisha, Imran. What are those replies? Yeah, so some of uh, says Voice uh, um, of Islam Radio, and so it's a very funny one. Yeah. And uh, obviously uh, Jamaat Mans, which means you know uh, community s- serving community, yeah. and uh, um, um, charity shops like mm-hmm. uh, Bernardos, and uh, obviously uh, in research like um, Exform Cancer mm-hmm. Research UK. Yeah. So, so these are for yeah, you know. 
Yeah, so some kind of like uh, charity shops, yeah. basically. Yeah. But uh, without further ado, we're going to join our, or we'll be joined by our next guest, uh, who is uh, Jessica Foster. And Jessica is the head of church engagement at the Trussell Trust. The Trussell Trust support a nationwide network of food banks, and together uh, they provide emergency food and support to people locked in poverty. Uh, they also campaign for change uh, or the change to the end of need for few banks in the UK. Peace be upon you, Jessica. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. <coughs> thank you. Salam. Hello, everybody. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I do believe that uh, I did came, come across an interesting kind of like trivial fact. Uh, from uh, which was actually, I think, on your website, saying that uh, currently in the UK there are more food banks than there are McDonald's. Yes, that's right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's an unfortunate, uh, you know, trivial pursuits type of fact, but that's where we find ourselves. Now, just um, for our listeners out there, you know, can you just explain what the trust or what is the Trussell Trust, and uh, what does uh, your organisation do? So we are a um, charity that wants to see the end of hunger in the UK. Mm -hmm. And we do that in a number of ways. We campaign and we raise awareness of the issues. We lobby uh, government and we engage with the public as much as possible. But at the same time, we support a network of 1,200 food bank distribution centres across the UK who uh, give food parcels to people who are in financial crisis. Mm-hmm. So, Jessica, how many um, volunteers currently exist within your network? So, at the moment, we have over 30,000 volunteers working wow. with us, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, when you have, uh, well, when you say 30-odd thousand, are they actually working, are they the main, I suppose, uh, uh, engine for the trust in, in terms of, uh, you know, working in the food banks, or is that, how is that, uh, those numbers... That thirty thousand volunteers split amongst your network. Yes, yeah, so they'll be working uh, mainly in the food banks, doing all sorts of things, from sorting food, welcoming people in hardship, mm-hmm. fundraising, speaking at community events, building partnerships, delivering food, collecting donations, and we do lots of signposting as well. When people come to food banks, they'll be part of that. Um, <clears throat> and of course, we have trustees who help with the governance and the running of food banks. So we think, on average, a, a volunteer will give about 16 hours a month. Mm-hmm. So that's two full days in a month, which means that we've been given 5 million hours a year across the network, which is just incredible. Wow, wow. I mean, 5 million hours. But I suppose it's it's still not enough, is it? In a sense. I mean, in, in terms of their contribution. But unfortunately... Um, the situation that I suppose we find ourselves in the UK um, isn't, you know, isn't kind of like helping that equation. And I suppose your charity and all other charities are, are feeling that pinch because, you know, if everyone on the ground is feeling this cost of living crisis, i.e., you know, inflation is hitting your own basket of goods, that must be affecting uh, how you're getting your goods as well or, you know, to put in your food parcels. Yeah, that's right. So for the first time this winter, we've had the 
need for food banks outstripping donations. So that hasn't happened to us before. Mm-hmm. Um, we're expecting to give out 1.3 million emergency food parcels in the next six months, which is you know, a dramatic increase wow. in the level of need. Uh, so that means that for the first time ever, the gap between donations and food being distributed is widening. Mm-hmm. And food banks are having to buy more and more food, uh, which is, is obviously a real issue. So so far this year, food banks have spent about 1400 a month of their own funds topping up donations. Mm-hmm. Whereas perhaps last year, they were spending about £750 a month. So it's mm-hmm. actually a 50% increase. So this year, Trussell Trust has launched its first ever emergency appeal to make sure that uh, food banks can continue to support the rising number of people facing hunger and hardship because we, you know, we don't want people to be hungry in this mm. devastating kind of perfect storm with the cost of living, the rising inflation. All those things are coming together, meaning people are being, you know, driven deeper and deeper into po- mm. poverty and destitution. Can I also ask you, just as a follow-up on that, Jessica, are you finding this year that the situation is even more dire? Because in previous years, it's really just been about food poverty. But, you know, with this year, you've got the added um, crisis of fuel poverty. Yeah, indeed. I mean, the rising energy prices, the inflation and a potential recession, that are all coming together, really, and pushing people. We're calling it a tsunami of need, to be honest, because mm-hmm. people are, lots of new people are coming to food banks, people in work, all those kind of things. We're seeing a rise. Mm. Yeah, so Jessica, can someone from the you know general public start a food bank if they feel there is a need for one, or they should you know uh, join any other um, charity? Yeah, one? so we like our food banks to work in partnership. So um, usually, a group of faith organisations will come together and community organisations to make sure that the needs of the community are understood. Uh, and then, if you look on our website, there, there's a whole kind of section on how to start a food bank. Um, I mean, really, we want to see, you know, we talk all the time about ending the needs of food banks. Mm-hmm. So we really, really want people to join us in campaigning and lobbying and asking the government to make sure that people on benefits have the money they need in their pockets to buy food. But obviously, at the moment, there's a need for emergency food. And, um, you know, we just need to work together, I think, in our communities to meet that initial mm. emergency. I mean, would, wouldn't it be... Um you know, better, I suppose, to actually, you know, instead of starting your own food bank, go to somewhere where it's established. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, obviously... I mean, if you um, say, for instance, you had, um, for instance, you know, for example, I'm a wholesaler uh, in fruit and veg, and I've got fruit and veg, which is kind of like near the sell-by date, but not quite, you know, past the good-for date... Uh, wouldn't it be more beneficial that I were to kind of distribute that to existing food banks? Absolutely. There's all kinds of ways of, of distributing food, and um, it, it's just great to get that that food out. But yes, working through established organisations that have their systems in place that are in contact with the community, they're already people are being referred to them. All those kind of systems are working really well. So yeah, I mean, we would urge anybody to get in touch with their nearest food bank if they want to donate food. Mm-hmm. Um, with our food banks, you can check and see what they need. But um, there's all sorts of, of organisations working together now to make sure people can have food. Mm. I mean, is there some coordinating? I mean, I know Trussell 
yourselves, Trussell Trust, yeah, are one of the biggest uh, uh, charities in terms of food poverty and addressing that issue. Is there some kind of uh, coordinating uh, charity or structure whereby you know you can you know what I'm trying to kind of get to is like an umbrella organization for these charities which are uh, predominantly dealing with the the food poverty uh, situation so um there's obviously ourselves and then there's there's another organization called the independent food aid network mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. national and then in many cities and towns, like so I'm in Birmingham, that Birmingham City Council, I think, will take an overview. They have a, a kind of uh, a coordinating group of people working in this area. Mm-hmm. So that's mm. another way that you can probably get involved. Mm. So you get involved with, i.e., well, start off, you know, your first uh, port of call would be charities and then maybe your local authority. Yeah, they might well know who's doing what in mm-hmm. your area. Okay, well, uh, it's been a it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon, Jessica. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Thanks very much. Thank bye. you. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. O two o eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, and um, yeah, I mean that's the thing because you know when we're talking about food banks, we've all got food which we have got at the back of our you know cupboards. I'm not talking. You know, I, I'm pretty much sure I've got stuff which is expired, right, yeah. in terms of tins. Mm-hmm. But actually, that, you know, if it's, it's sealed, it can last for decades. Absolutely. I'm not joking, right? Yeah, yeah. It might not taste the best, but it'll last for decades. Mm-hmm. So what I would implore all our listeners out there is to have, you know, look in your pantries. I mean, this is a bit of an old old school word for it, right? <laughs> Cupboards, let's say, right? <laughs> but look in, seriously... Root around your kitchens and your pantries, right? All your cupboards, get to the back of them, and you're going to find things like, well, we're predominantly Asians, right? So you're going to find things like lentils, right? Mm-hmm. All sorts of lentils, all sorts of atta, which is flour, mm-hmm. right? And it's most probably been sat there for a good year, two years, doing nothing. It's more needed now than ever. So, you know, get all those things out. Get those tins of chickpeas, right? Get those tins of tomatoes out, which, you know, okay, tins of tomatoes you're going to most probably use quite often. But certain, um, you know, kind of pantry items like pasta, uh, all the dried goods, yeah, that you thought were a good idea because it came on Jeremy, uh, Jamie Oliver's cooking show <laughs> one time, right? Mm. And then you've never got around to actually cooking that recipe, Get them out, take them down to your local, even if you can't go to your charity. I know, say, for instance, my local uh, supermarket, they have charities out front which are taking donations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can just leave the food there. Your supermarkets are collecting food as well. I mean, we are in that circumstance whereby we need to help our fellow you know, brothers. Absolutely. I mean, um, another day my mom was saying to me, you know, um, that uh, I've got two packages of pastas and, you know, um, give them to the charity. And uh, mm-hmm. so I was just being lazy. And uh, you're right, you know, um, everyone has uh, extra food at their yeah. home and they maybe don't really need them. So obviously in these, these times of need, you know, we should take care of our, of our, of our brothers and sisters mm-hmm. and um, give that food uh, to, to, to the people who really mm-hmm. need. 
Mm. And to talk more about volunteering, we're joined by our last guest of the day. We're joined by, uh, excuse me, I'll just kind of go to my sheets here because I'm a bit, uh, my order's gone a bit awry. Uh, we're joined by Richard, Richard Evans. And now Richard is the Acting Assistant Director for the Conservation Volunteers uh, at London, a national charity to connect people and green spaces. Uh, their vision is a vision of healthier and happier communities for, ev for everyone. Peace be upon you, Richard. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show this afternoon. Hi, good evening. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And I, I, um, I do apologise. I think that your order of events has been thrown out because of me. I wasn't going to point any fingers, Richard. I <laughs> no, wasn't. I honestly, I, I, I honestly. do apologise. I <laughs> no, do no apologise. I'm sorry. I'm no sorry need. About no that. need. But thank you for the introduction. Yeah, no need. Uh, well, no, very much need for the introduction, but no need for the apologies on mm. your your side. Now, tell thank us. You. Tell us a little bit about conservation volunteers. I mean, what's the purpose of this 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 concept, this this organisation of yours? Well, it's 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 broadly as you've just described it. Our our vision is healthier, happier communities for everyone, and our mission is to connect people in green spaces to deliver lasting outcomes for both. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the critical bit there. It's for it's for both. There is there is increasing recognition, and the evidence, you know, the body of evidence is growing daily, weekly, monthly, of the benefits of um, people being given the opportunity to spend our time, sorry, to spend time outdoors in nature. It has a restorative effect. It has a calming effect. Um, so there's there's an increase, you know, and, and, and in the very busy and increasingly modernized world that we live, there is um, an increasing recognition about the both mental and physical health benefits of that. Mm -hmm. The other side of it, when I say lasting outcomes for both, the other thing that we can't forget is that without the natural world out there, we, well, we can't exist, is, you know, is the bottom line. We all breathe air and we drink water, mm -hmm. and, and health ecosystems are what deliver those ecosystem services for our very survival. So it's, it's, it's a critical relationship, um, and it's, it's one that we obviously believe very strongly in, and it's one that uh, we see as as growing in terms of uh, in terms of the traction that we're getting in our audiences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, Richard, how does um, TCV protect green spaces across the UK? So, at the heart of everything we do are local communities and volunteers, and the the main the main focus, the key focus, is really is what we're trying to do is we're trying to activate the energy, the enthusiasm, the interest of local communities to take an interest in their local green spaces. And the more that happens, the greater the level of uh, interest the local community develops, the greater the lobbying power that that group then has with their local authorities or whatever you know local body is responsible for that land. It's, it's, it's an empowering process. Um, and it's... it's um, you know, it's without without those community members, we we can't really do what we do. We can't exist. So, mm -hmm. so, so we are very much a partnership organisation at the interface between those communities and between those green spaces. Mm. So, um, Richard, uh, your uh, you know TCV uh, has a program called I Dig Trees. Correct. Um, yeah. I, I quite appreciate the 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 
you know, the, the pun on words there, right? We I quite, dig yes, yes, trees, I'd say, right? yeah, yeah, we're quite proud of it, I think, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, how can the public participate in, the, in this programme? And, you know, can you quantify how many trees have already been planted regarding this programme? Or due to yeah. this programme, I should yeah. say. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. We, the programme has been running since 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, we have distributed about 2.2 million trees. Wow. So those are trees then that, that, that through, through so, so we always work in partnership. Mm-hmm. As I said earlier, we are always at the interface between it may be, you know, corporate sponsors, it may be local authorities who assist us with funding, it may be grant funded opportunities. But we're at that interface between those sources and then the community groups. And, and the I Dig Trees program, basically what it's about is providing free tree packs to community groups across the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, by the end of the current season, we're aiming to have planted about 3 million trees. Oh. And, um, yeah, uh, we, we, we've still got about 300,000 left to give away. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, in terms of community groups accessing those trees, if you get onto our website, there's a very easy link to follow and you submit an application and the trees are actually delivered to you. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's, so, it's a so program. Richard, can I just jump in there? So, yeah, you know, yeah. that your proportion of trees, because, I mean, it seems to me that, uh, I mean, how, how, what's the kind of proportion of, let's say, that 3 million or the 2 million that you've currently planted? Are they mainly in urban uh urban settings or more rural settings it'll be a mixture it's right. a mixture we w- one of the challenges we have in london specifically where i'm based or the operation that i look after is we we do struggle often for opportunity to plant trees because mm-hmm. of the urban nature of, of of london um we're a national organization we've got uh, a presence in in northern ireland scotland and then right throughout england as well mm-hmm. so those trees will be distributed across a very broad geographical area Mm-hmm. So, um, Richard, um, how many volunteers over do you think are given to TCV every year? Well, we did some digging, mm-hmm. and last uh, I was actually quite astounded myself <laughs> because I don't often look at these figures. But you but like last, digging? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, this man is on the ball. This man is on the ball. Last last financial year, so the twenty 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 one financial year. Um, TCV, we, 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 we had about 72,000 volunteer hours committed wow. um, towards working with us. Yeah. And that's a, it's a mixture of, of regular TCV volunteers. So we call them regular volunteers. Those are the people who turn up in our projects week in, week out, regardless of the weather. Mm-hmm. It'll be local community groups with whom we work. It'll be corporate groups who come out to spend time with us as well. Um, but yeah, about, about 72,000 hours. Wow, seventy-two thousand hours. That's a, that's yeah. a, that's a huge amount of time. I mean, it is. How it in, is, and if you monetize that, yeah, uh, you know, depending on which figures you use, and various people use different methods of calculating volunteer mm-hmm. time, it's an enormous resource. Yeah, yeah. I mean, seventy-two thousand hours. Even you, as yeah. I say, that's the ten pound a minimum wage. Even my rudimentary mass would say that's like seven hundred grand. Uh, in terms of minimum wage. But I suppose you can't really say that everyone is on minimum wage because I'm sure, uh, like with a lot of the charities that we've spoken to today, a lot of people that give their time are actually um, volunteering their time are in different uh, vocations. You know, they might be a surgeon, they might be an accountant. So how do you equate their time uh, that they're um, actually volunteering? There are there are ways we do a lot of work with 
uh, you will have heard of the, the um, National Lottery Heritage Fund. Mm-hmm. We do we do work with um, with their funding model and, and get funding through them. And I, I haven't looked at it in a while now, but I think for basic, what they refer to is, is sort of basic unskilled labor. They work on about 10 pounds an hour. Mm-hmm. Semi-skilled is... Oh goodness, you're testing. <laughs> no, we don't. My knowledge. We, we, we but, don't need to go. There is a sliding scale. There is yeah, a sliding we, we scale don't need to go into the nuts and bolts. Yeah, just, yeah. just suffice to say that it's 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 quite a big amount monetary wise. It definitely is. It yeah. definitely is. I mean, yeah. how important are volunteers to your cause? Well, they're at the heart of everything that we do. Mm-hmm. Without the volunteers, we don't have a case. We don't have a project. So, so. We don't, you know, we're not like a contractor who employs staff to go out and deliver work. What mm-hmm. we do is, is we seek out funding in order to um, activate the energy of local community members. So without, without volunteers, we basically don't, well, we don't exist, to put it bluntly. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, volunteers are absolutely at the heart of everything that we do. Mm-hmm. And just on, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, actually, yeah, uh, yeah. with the I dig trees program yeah. right you so like do, it, don't you? i really do actually <laughs> it's 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 the, it's a catchphrase it's really quite catchy or you know as a as a as a title for a program but yeah. actually what kind of trees do you give out in your packs i mean are they fruit bearing trees or are they you know like we have in london these uh old plane trees yeah what type of trees are they not not plane trees. All of the trees. So so I don't know if you know this, but but the the London planes are actually hybrid trees. Mm-hmm. They're very good in terms of resisting uh, air pollution, yeah. but they're mm-hmm. not great in terms of their wildlife value and sorry value and their biodiversity value. Mm-hmm. The trees that we give out are all British native species. Right. So what we're doing is we're wanting to um, we're wanting to further and strengthen the biodiversity of the UK and therefore mm-hmm. using using native um, species is critical to that. And we have um, on our website, we've got about five different options in terms of the tree packs that you can apply for. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're a mixture. Some of them are sort of smaller, lower growing trees that might be better suited to urban environments. Some are taller woodland trees. There's, you know, there's a broad, a broad mixture. Also, we've got some, some tree packs that are focused more on, on hedge planting. So mm-hmm. in the UK, we plant and manage lots of lots of um, hedges and hedgerows. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason behind that is they are very valuable in terms of li- of, of um, bird life, wildlife, mm. exactly. Yeah, wildlife habitat as well. Mm. Yeah. Excellent. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon, Richard. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show. It's a pleasure, and once again, I do apologise for no, that no, no mixed worries. up earlier, but but um, I'm glad we I'm glad we got the opportunity. Yeah, no, no. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Okay. Thank you. You too. Take care. Uh, 0208-687-7878 or Voice of Islam uh, UK. So, you know, anything in conclusion to you know this idea of volunteering? Yeah, so fundamental qualities that we Quickly. must yeah, <laughs> fundamental quality that we must all acquire to serve mankind or to develop a passion to serve mankind our love uh, for humanity kindness mm-hmm. in our heart for others and a charitable uh, disposition humility honesty and a, a thirst for knowledge um, I mean that is what you all need and uh, 
and uh, there is actually research that if you help other people, you actually feel better. Yeah. And uh, um, for all of the people who are um, surviving or um, going through the mental health issues, uh, they can reform themselves like um, mm. um, in that way um, mm-hmm. to serve humanity and to volunteer themselves and um, um, find out if they if, if this can help for them or not. Mm. And I'm sure that it does help them. I mm-hmm. mean, the gift in giving isn't the actual gift itself it's actually the giving part of it isn't it but with that we come to the end of our monday show a big thank you to our producers uh laiba mabasha and uh file janud nasir uh to our technician uh in the booth uh zishan my co-host imran akram and myself talib man here is the six o'clock news